Lynn Hiles Ministries presents That You Might Have Life. He said he didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. So Jesus came that we might have life. The Bible said in him was life, the life was the light of men. The more light you have, the more life you're going to have. So you can have peace was on me. That's why it's called the gospel of peace. He took your punishment so you could get his peace. He took what you had coming so you could get what he has coming. All around the country and around the world, people just like you are awakening to the good news of Jesus Christ. What God wanted to do was release the kingdom of God in your life until the joy and the peace and the righteousness of the Holy Ghost would so fill your life. I don't want to just make heaven my home. I want to make my home like heaven. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. God bless you, and thank you for joining us again on the program. Once again, I trust that you've been blessed by uh, the word you're hearing coming from this. I'm Dr. Lynn Hiles, and I'm the host of That You Might Have Life. And I trust you've been tuning in every week and telling your friends about us as we dig into the deeper things uh, of the Word of God. I believe there are people hungry for it, and I believe that uh, especially when it comes to some concepts about the book of Revelation and how it relates to the gospel of grace. And we're going to continue to unpack this at least for a season. Uh, we have probably aired over, I, I would say, probably somewhere around 12 shows now on the book of Revelation. We're still in chapter 2, and uh, we're still going to talk about the church at Smyrna probably for the next two programs. But uh, last week we began to deal with the whole concept. Well, what we're dealing with is the church of Smyrna is the suffering church. The church, uh, the word Smyrna itself literally means uh, suffering or uh, the, uh, the bitterness of suffering. And uh, he addresses this church, and let me just go ahead and read the text again, but it says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto the death, and I will give you a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now what this church was doing was experiencing a suffering. And, uh, but in the middle of this, he says, I know your works and your, uh, uh, your, and, and, and your tribulation and your poverty. And then in the middle of it, he puts these words in brackets. But thou art rich. In other words, I hear, him, you know, I hear the Lord saying to the church, uh, you're going through a whole lot of stuff needlessly. Because if you just knew what you already had, you know, I appreciate what I hear sometimes Joel Osteen say when he comes on his program. He'll raise his Bible. I love that. He says, this is my Bible. Uh, I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I can have what it says I can have. The trouble of it is, is that we don't really realize what we already have and what Jesus paid for. We have somehow gotten this mindset that you and I have to pay for our own redemption. And even in my early days, my early days of teaching, people taught me that what Jesus did in his earth walk 
in his in, in in was or not his earth walk, but in his death, burial, and resurrection, was simply he did that as a pattern son. His earth walk, he was a pattern son, but in his death, burial, and resurrection, he did what only he could do. Uh, he didn't die to show me how to die. He died as me and not just for me. His death was my death. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. And then we would come back and we would say, yeah, but the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. And I probably should have looked it up before I came on here, but uh, uh, he was writing that, I believe, at the church at Ephesus. And he said to them, if after the manner of men, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, I died daily. He's talking about a daily dying not to sin. There is not, he's not talking about dying daily to sin. He was talking about a persecution and a tribulation where he literally faced physical death with the beast at Ephesus in the arenas of the Roman arenas when Christians were being torn to shreds every day on a physical level. When Paul was talking about, I face death on a regular basis, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about... I'm dying out each day and we never seem to get dead enough. Matter of fact, the scripture teaches the opposite. Romans the sixth chapter says we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. And then he goes on to say to reckon yourselves dead. You know, when, when he reveals himself to this church at, at Ephesus and he says to them, I'm the first and the last. What he's simply saying is, I'm identifying with you in the first Adam, and through my death, my burial, and my resurrection, I became the last Adam. But Romans 6 is so powerful because it tells us then, it said, you know, it tells us in, in Romans 6, what shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, not dying, be are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. This to me is an identification with the death. I dealt with in the last segment, the second death shall not, see he tells this church, he that overcometh will not be hurt of the second death. The second death is simply a death to the first one. But we through his, uh, we by identifying with the death of Christ, we're not hurt by that death because we then become part of a resurrection as well. Because if we identify with him in his death, we also identify with him in his resurrection. Verse 4 says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more death, hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. It's not an ongoing thing, folks. It's something that was exacted for you in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the application of that and the identification of that, I believe, is what he's talking about when he's saying be faithful to this death. In other words, if you're dead, then don't let sin reign over your mortal body. Since then, you've been raised. The things above be constantly seeking. In other words, we reinforce that death by being faithful to what he's already done, that I'm not dying, I'm dead, and I'm, my life is hid with Christ in God. And when I believe that, right believing, believing produces right living. And it goes on to say, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God, 
through Jesus Christ, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it and the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, because you're not under law, but under grace. He tells you to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. When I think about the term reckoning, I think about balancing a checkbook. It's one thing, uh, you know, to tell somebody, you know, it's one thing, well, a lot of us have a statement. Let me say it like this. Uh, a lot of us have a statement of faith. It's like our bank statement. If I sent you something, for instance, if you got a letter in the mail today and your bank says you've got $100,000 in your account. Now, that's a statement. And that's a statement and, and you may look at that statement of faith and you thought, well, you know, when I counted my money, I had $10. And now they're telling me I got 100,000. This must be a typo. But the statement says you've got 100,000. So uh, what happens is, is because you don't know how that money got there, you don't have the faith to spend it. In other words, because you, don't, you know you didn't make a deposit, you know you didn't put that money in there, you're afraid to write out a check on that $100,000 statement of faith. That's how a lot of people are today. They have a statement of faith of something they heard somebody say Jesus did for them, but they don't know how it got there, so they've never reckoned it. But if you called that banker on the telephone, and that banker says, Mr. House, this is not a type error. It's not a mistake. This is in fact true. Somebody made a deposit in your account for $100,000. Well, the first thing my banker going to hear is me talking in tongues because I'm going to get real blessed about that. But the moment you know how it got there, the moment you reckon how it got there is the moment then you'll spend that currency. What are you saying? I'm saying that when we preach the cross and we preach what Christ did for us, that is how we reckon ourselves to be dead uh, to sin and alive to God. And when we reckon it, we know how it got there. When we know what Jesus did, His death, burial, and His resurrection, then we, don't, we have more than just a statement of faith. We have something we can act on because we know how it got on our account. He accounted some things to us for righteousness. And I think that's so very, very powerful. Let me just show you something else in Romans 7. It says, Know you not, brother, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become, watch this, you're become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married, that you should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead, that we should bring Bring forth fruit unto God. In chapter 7, it tells you that as long as you are alive, this, this thing is dealing with the concept of if a man is, if a woman is married and her husband is still alive, she is still bound by the law to her husband as long as he's alive. And if she marries somebody else and her husband, her first husband is still alive and she marries another man, she's called an adulteress. Well, here's what powerfully helped me is verse 4 said that we should be married to another even to him who's raised from the dead. So the one who's raised from the dead is the same, the first and the last, the one who's appearing to this church in Smyrna. 
And if we're married to this man who was raised from the dead, not, not going to, we should be married to him. It says that we should be married to another. See, the new covenant is your marriage certificate. You are married to another. And if you are married to another, Christ must know that your first husband, who is your first husband? Adam. Who has kept, but the law keeps you bound to that first Adam. See, the old covenant was given to make the old man behave. The new covenant was given to the new man, to, hallelujah, to declare to him the newness of his life and, and, and to, to bring him into a whole totally different experience. But what I'm simply saying is, if Christ married you and your first husband, Adam, is still alive, and you are still bound by the law, then Christ is in an adulterous relationship, and I don't think he'd have married you if he knew your first husband was still alive. But he knows how he got crucified, because he was crucified on the cross when Jesus was lifted up. He took who you were in Adam, nailed him to the cross, delivered you from that whole old way of life, delivered you from that whole sin, uh, sin dominion, and all the power that it had, and when we reckon that, we move out of our mentality that says I've got to suffer and God is trying to bring me through a knothole backwards and the, the more I suffer the better God likes it and you know that's what's producing sonship in me and the truth of it is is I think we've got to switch from my suffering to his suffering. Your suffering is not redemptive. His suffering is. You can suffer all you want to needlessly, but I'm trying to get you to see that if you can come to a day of atonement and get a revelation that the 10 days of this, this church at Smyrna, you're going to be in prison. The devil will cast some of you into prison for 10 days. Why 10 days? Because the 10th day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. It was a time of afflicting the soul, and the afflicting of the soul simply means of the way you think. It's repentance. The moment you change your mind about suffering, your suffering is over. I'm trying to get somebody out of suffering. You know, I could tell you this much. What you preach is what will manifest. If you preach on suffering, people will suffer. I, I, I used to be there, man. I declared a lot of this stuff because it's what I was taught. You preach on devils, devils will show up. You preach on uh, suffering, people will suffer. I just decided to preach the abundance. I just decided to determine to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. His death was my death and His suffering was my suffering and that I begin to reckon myself to be dead to sin and alive to God and all of a sudden what I'm preaching started to manifest. Favor started to come. Grace started to come because that's what happens when you do it. Now let me just go back over here because a lot of the places where people turn when they talk about suffering is the Romans, the 8th chapter. But let's take a look at the kind of suffering that's really deep being deal, dealt with here. And I'm going to read to you from the Message Bible. I started it back a, a few programs ago, but I want to, uh, got more time to make some comments on it. Uh, verse number 1 says, With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under the continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. And that's what produces the suffering, is the sin and death. God went for the juggler when He sent His own Son. He didn't deal with the problem of something remote and unimportant in His Son, Jesus. He personally took on the human condition entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once for all. The law code, weakened as it was, was fractured by human nature, could never have done that. 
The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. I, I shared this when I talked about it a little bit before on another program. I think one of these days I'm going to preach this text. I'm just going to stand somebody up and get me a whole box of band-aids or a big old roll of duct tape. And I'm going to just start putting tape and Band-Aids on them. Because that's what we do in the American church every week is we cover people up with Band-Aids. But see, the law is just a Band-Aid on sin. It's not the deep healing of it. And while we're scared to death to let somebody preach the grace of God and the favor of God, let me tell you what's going to happen. Where sin abounds, grace is going to superabound because grace will bring a deep healing to the whole sin issue. It brings more change in people's lives ultimately than all the band-aids in the world can do. And it may look like we're doing all kinds of good by putting band-aids on everybody, but all we're really doing is just prolonging the pain. But I'm telling you there's a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but couldn't deliver is accomplished as we instead of, watch this, redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. I'm telling you, when you embrace what the Spirit is doing in you, you'll find out that your performance is not what He's looking for. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin. Now, I need to verse, next verse. Says, Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that the Spirit, God's Spirit in them, living and breathing God, Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into the spacious, free life. Focusing on, the, on, focusing on self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores God is, and, and uh, that, that person ignores who God is and what He is doing, and God isn't pleased with being ignored. In other words, the whole self-life in this concept is that when you think you can do this through the religious efforts of flexing your own moral muscle and your own redoubling your efforts and re your recommitments, and your, it's not about you being able to do this. It's about embracing what God is doing in you. And then he goes on to say, but God Himself has taken up residence in your life. You can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of Him. Anyone, of course, who does not welcome, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ won't know, the Spirit of Christ won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome Him in, in who, who He dwells in, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same in you that He did in Jesus, bringing you alive to Himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and He does, as surely as He did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With His Spirit living in you, your body will be alive as Christ. In other words, the emphasis is not on the dying. The emphasis is on the power of His resurrection and His life working in you and embracing what the Spirit of God is doing in you. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. I love that. <laughs> 
You don't owe this old do-it-yourself, your self-help programs. You know there's so many books, even in the Christian market, that all they are is secular books with a Christian spin on them and their self-help issues. I, uh, you know, there may be some benefits to that, but I'm telling you that you don't owe this, uh, this do-it-yourself, fix-it-up life any one red cent. He said there's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. I love that. It's not like a grave, t you know, we're like Joseph of Arimathea. I think about Joseph of Arimathea, who every day he got up, he went out and dug his own grave. I'm, I'm, you, you think about this guy. It wasn't just a one-time deal. If they're digging a hewing it out of a rock, this is what this guy did in all of his spare time. I tell you, it reminds me of my early Christian life. All I ever did was be a grave tender. I kept on trying to find a place to bury myself. But when I found out Jesus' death was my death, I, like Joseph of Arimathea, said, here, take my tomb and my death, because if you take that, I ain't going to need it. And I just believe that that's where we're standing, is we don't need to have this grave tending life. I love that. It's adventurously, now we, it's an adventurously expectant greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? I love that. God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with Him. And I believe that the, the hard times of the suffering he's talking about is the suffering again that says, you know what, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, they rejected him, they're going to reject you. That's the suffering that Paul was experiencing in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7 as he's declaring this new covenant and he's bringing them out from underneath of the tyranny of a law code and of a legalistic religious system that they've done for 1,500 years. The suffering that Paul was undergoing was not just personal affliction, it was the things that were affiliated with this whole suffering of preaching the gospel that Paul was preaching. It's not just, okay, Paul was having cancer, uh, Paul had arthritis, Paul, you know. No, Paul was cast in prison. Paul was rejected by the scribes, Pharisees. He was run out of one town, whipped, beat. That's the kind of persecution he was enduring that says if we're going to suffer, that's the kind of suffering that he was happening. Because this early church was about to give birth to something. Now, it goes on down to kind of describe that a little bit as we go on down. It says, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all creation are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains, but it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired 
required in the waiting. God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in us and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what He was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines of the life of His Son. The, this, the Son stands the first in the line of humanity that He restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Him. Let me just say this before I go on. I believe that what He's saying is there is a pregnant creation that was at this time. Let's bring this into context again of Paul's suffering. Paul is being persecuted, run from city to city, run out of the synagogues, beat with whips, forbid to speak concerning Christ and the grace of God. He's seeing God move among these Gentiles on a phenomenal level. That's the suffering Paul was experiencing. Because there was a pregnant creation that was about to move out from underneath of this whole legalistic law covenant of Moses. That's what Romans is about. Romans 5, 6, and 7 was especially, you heard me just teach it, is that when we were under the law, that, that, we were, that the law kept us bound to our old man, and that as long as that, that uh, old man was alive, we were under that law code, but we are dead to sin. We're dead to the law by the body of Christ that we should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead. So the pressure and the birth pains that Paul was under was the birthing of the gospel of the grace, the birthing of the gospel of the kingdom, and the great transition that was upon them in that particular period, and all of creation was groaning and travailing for that to come upon them. I believe to some degree we're sensing some of that, not on the level Paul did, but we suffer persecution for what we preach here on television. There's somebody, there's always people who love you and people who hate you. And, uh, but that's the persecution that goes along with trying to be a cutting edge. And even what we're teaching with Revelation is that, you know, we're not trying to be controversial. We just try to give you what God said to us. And with that comes some persecution. But what, what, what drives me is that there are something that we're pregnant with that God wants to give birth to. And what this creation was groaning and travailing for was for the manifestation of the sons of God. But this hit me so powerful the other day as I was riding down the road. It says, because creation itself will be brought into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. So the glorious liberty that was about to be birthed was this freedom from law and this tyranny of this oppression of a sin-dominated life that found its strength through the law of Moses. God was about to bring creation into a glorious liberty. Let me tell you something. If there's anything that would drive me to be persecuted or suffer, it is my still my passion and my drive to say, you know what? I'm going to preach the gospel because it's setting people free. It's changing lives on a global level. If you could see the letters that we receive from people who are being set free from the gospel, you would say, hallelujah, thank God somebody is willing to suffer the persecution and that's the suffering that's here in this plot. And then he goes on just down to say there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Not persecution, not trial, not trouble. Not any creature can separate us from the love of God. That's the kind of suffering that Paul was talking about. Not sins, not, not sickness and all those things. We're about to run out of time. God bless you for joining us today. Take a few moments to call that number on the screen to write to us. Sow a seed into the ministry. It helps us to preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of the kingdom around the world. I thank the Lord for your support and your help. And uh, go to our website. Tell your friends about us and tune in again next week at the same time. God bless you.
This series is about living life in the context of sonship. Jesus is recognized as a son in the River Jordan by his father. Flowing from his identity as a son, Jesus comes up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit with incredible demonstrations of the miraculous. He introduces to his followers the new covenant idea that God is more than just an austere judge. He is our Father. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Let us awaken to our true identity and set creation free.